0: Welcome to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. If you've been listening to the show for some time, you know that we occupy a unique place in the landscape of true crime media. We're not law enforcement, tackling tough cases firsthand. Nor are we attorneys or judges assessing those cases from the courtroom or the bench. We're historians, writers tasked with telling the story of gathering the threads of fact and weaving those into a tapestry for all to see. The task can be arduous, tedious, frustrating, but the responsibility is immense. The responsibility to victims, to investigators, to the truth of the story itself, even when that story is difficult, if not impossible to tell. Almost a year ago, we began this show, and for all those months thus far, we have presented the finished tapestry, the published book. Today, however, on this special bonus episode of Crime Capsule, we wanted to pull back the curtain and show you how the loom works, how the shuttle flies, how a writer and an editor together create the warp and the weft of the final garment, a how-to episode. And to spice things up, we've chosen a book whose difficulty level was set to 10. An unsolved case, a case from the 1970s in San Francisco that has stymied law enforcement for decades. Some cases, like some books, are open and shut. But the case of the doodler murders has chapter after chapter that remains unwritten. To tell that story and to tell the story of that story, we are thrilled to have Kate Zaliznak and Laurie Krill here to take us through it. Kate Zaliznak is a Bay Area based writer and editor and the author of The San Francisco Doodler Murders published this month by the History Press. Laurie Krill is an acquisitions editor at the History Press who first picked up the manuscript and steered it through to completion. Our next regular season of Crime Capsule will begin in a few weeks, but for now, enjoy this special two-part bonus episode on a killer whose name you may have never heard before, but which now you'll never forget. Kate, Laurie, thank you both so much for joining us on Crime Capsule for this bonus episode. And congratulations on the publication of your book. Before we get started, would you just introduce yourselves to our listeners?
1: Sure. My name is Kate Solisnok. And thank you so much, by the way, for having me on this podcast. Pleasure. Um, I'm from the Bay Area. I live here. And um, my background is primarily in the arts. I'm an art consultant and uh, a writer who's focused on the arts in the past. This is my first true crime book. It's always been a passion and it's always been a dream. So when the pandemic hit and uh, time opened up to do it,
2: I made it happen. Yeah.
0: Congratulations.
2: Uh, I'm Laurie Krill. I am an acquisitions editor at the History Press, which is part of Arcadia Publishing. And I work on a lot of different books, but True Crime is one of my favorites. And I was really excited when Kate came to me with her idea. Um, And it's really great to see it as a finished book.
0: Well, thank you. Today, we're going to talk not just about this case, the unsolved murders in San Francisco in the mid-1970s, uh, but we're going to talk about the story of the case, the research and the writing of this book. Uh, call it kind of a how to write a true crime book as much as we're looking at the crime itself. Uh, Kate, I'd like to start with you. What is your connection to this case? How did you first find it?
1: Well, I had heard about this case very, just very briefly um, in a conversation a couple years ago with a, a coworker and uh, it was in, during the course of a conversation of talking about a lot of things that happened in you know, San Francisco, unsolved cases. So when the opportunity came up to um, send Arcadia some pitches for different books it was when I really looked into this case more. And uh, it turns out that I used to live across the street, literally across the street from where these murders began. I used to live on Ocean Beach. I could look out my window and see where this whole thing wow. started. Um, so when I looked at it more in terms of uh, shaping a pitch for the book, what was really important to me when it came to tackling my first case was that I knew the area. So I was really familiar right. with um, just, just the layout, just little things that, you know, if I'd never been there, I wouldn't know about it, right? So the connection really came from wanting to find a cold case that was a serial killer and wanting to find a case that was in the Bay Area that was accessible to me. So that's kind of how I found out about it. And the other thing that was really important to me was that uh, I found a case where marginalized victims were involved Mm -hmm. to, you know, have an opportunity to try to find some justice In those cases. And this one I thought was a really great opportunity to try to
2: do that. I I have to say that um, I'm originally from California. I live in Charleston now um, for work, but I had never heard of this case. And I only lived three hours from San Francisco. So, you know, I think that there's probably. Um, I think one of my favorite things about Kate picking this case was highlighting something, both the marginalized community and something that like I had never heard of, mm. which which made it like doubly interesting for me because this is where I grew up. So the fact that I hadn't heard of this and she was really interested in making those connections and highlighting something that had been overlooked, like that was a really important consideration for me when she came to me with this idea.
0: Yeah. Uh, Laurie, tell us, how did this story come to find you, what state was Kate's manuscript in when you first started working together?
2: One of the coolest things about working in nonfiction versus fiction is that like oftentimes when people come to me, there's no manuscript. Like what we're looking Mm. at is the kernel of an idea um, that will grow into the book. And so I'm kind of able to help guide the book from it's first draft, you know, opening chapter, what we want to cover in the book, what's important um, to cover in the book. And then uh, Kate really gets to kind of build her framework, get feedback if she needs it. And, um, you know, we we kind of help the book come together uh, together. Like it's not a, mm-hmm. a, an endeavor that she had to undertake and then, you know, try to figure out how it was going to fit Um, with our publishing company, because every publishing company is a little different. We all require different things. There's different things to consider beyond just the content when you're evaluating whether a book is going to fit with a company. So for us, it's great to get in on on the ground floor before the manuscript is done.
0: It sounds like a very symbiotic relationship in that, you know, Kate, you might be teaching Laurie about the material, the actual contents and the details of the case. And then Laurie, you were there, you know, guiding, shaping and directing the flow of the larger narrative, kind of crafting it into a more substantive account.
2: Uh, Yes. In some cases, I have to say like Kate obviously is very talented, like she's a great writer. Um, So I didn't have to worry about that kind of stuff like line level, like whatever. She was doing a great job. So my job was more coming in as a reader, as a cold reader. Like I don't know this case like she does. So I'm able to point out things where I'm like, I don't really think I'm following your train of thought here. Can we bring this out a little bit more? Can we connect these two things a little more strongly so that you Um, when your reader picks up the book, they're able to follow the thread of your train of thought. And that's one of the more important things that I do is just kind of making sure that when you're writing a book, like you're in that world so much and you spend so much time there, you're so familiar with it, um, that sometimes you forget that a reader is coming in and is not, does not have the same level of knowledge that you do. So you kind of have to step back a little bit and make sure that you're guiding them, um, through the through the book, through the you know timeline that you've, you've
0: developed, I'll have some specific questions for you about uh, about those moments shortly, uh, Laurie, But for now, let's just jump right into uh, what happened. The book begins with a cold open, as the filmmakers say, in 1974, when a body is found on a uh, slightly remote beach in. Uh, San Francisco. Whose body was it, Kate? And what had happened?
1: So this man's name was Gerald Earl Kavanaugh, and he had either gone to Ocean Beach on his own or was brought to Ocean Beach. All we know for certain is that at one twenty-nine a.m. the following morning. So that would, you know, January. 27th, mm-hmm. the call was made into San Francisco Police Department that a body was found um, on the shoreline. So the person didn't want to give their name, didn't want to get involved. Um, so, pretty much immediately, the uh, detectives came to the scene and arrived just before Gerald's body was pretty much pulled out to sea. They had to. Mm kind of go into the surf and get him back to shore. He had been viciously stabbed a number of times, mostly in the back. So, you know, that somebody kind of, he wasn't expecting this. And um, he was barely mentioned in the press. There's very little that we know about Gerald because, frankly, his death occurred... In a place that was a well known uh, cruising ground for gay men, Mm -hmm. there was sort of this attitude of, What was he doing out there in the middle of the night? Well, what do you expect if you go out there in the middle of the night? It's dangerous. You know, Mm -hmm. you're living a lifestyle that we don't approve of, that type of thing. So there was a lot of homophobia and a lot of um, disinterest in that murder in general, even though it was extremely graphic. I mean there this was a lot of frenzied stabbing, a lot of blood. And it really would have been something that made more headlines. If number one, I think if this were a straight man, but also number two, he was not the only gay man who was being found on these cruising grounds murdered whether it be by the doodler or someone else. Once I really started looking at this case, the overwhelming aspect of it wasn't so much just the doodler case. It was how many murders of gay men were happening at this time Mm -hmm. and sifting through all of that information and all of those cases. Gerald might have been the first of the doodler, but he was certainly not the first gay man to be brutally slaughtered um, in San Francisco so in 73 or 74. He was in the very beginning of 74. That's the first murder that we uh, associate with the doodler.
0: And fairly soon thereafter, uh, more victims begin to emerge. You write that there's a second, then a third, and then how... How many men were killed in total that we know of in that first wave of murders?
1: Well, there for about, let's see, 45 years, it was, the number was five. Five men who were associated with the doodler as a serial killer. This year, there has been as close to confirmation as you can get, from law enforcement that a sixth victim might have also been involved in this case. So that hasn't been proven yet, but I can, I've had it confirmed by SFPD, by the lead investigator on this case. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is an instance, you know, that's a, a case that I'd like to hear some more about because it is, you know, sort of something they've just talked about so the number recently has gone from five to six
0: and you write that there are a number of details that many not all but many of the victims share such as there's some very interesting ones number one sobriety total sobriety um they're they're seeming with
1: the exception of one
0: with the exception of one right who's very drunk um another one is a Seeming lack of sexual activity prior to their deaths and even the way in which uh, the killer seemed to gain their trust only to literally stab them in the back. They mm-hmm. they were all attacked from behind. Or not all, but, but the vast majority of yes. them yes. were. So what do we learn from these similarities?
1: So, number one... I think that these men were targeted, um, because with the exception of one, it seems that these were very closeted men. Um, the majority of them were immigrants who didn't have a lot of, you know, family and friends in the area. Um, it is the easiest thing, you know, if you're trying to pick a victim, you want to Pick someone who is not going to be immediately missed, or who you think is not going to be immediately missed. Um, the lack of evidence of sexual activity that has been made public, at least, I can say there's nothing that's been made public, um, is probably the thing that stuck out the most to me in this case. It was something that I felt, you know, I needed to get consults. From retired FBI, um, from mm. current researchers at uh, the NCABC, which is the FBI's branch for victim studies of, of you know, violent crimes, mm-hmm. that is not normal. That is very unusual for a serial killer to use a sexual lure. You know, all of these men, assumingly, we went to these places with the intention of. Um, having some sort of sexual activity. Mm-hmm. So using a sexual lure to get victims to a place, but then not sexually assaulting them is, makes this, this person a little bit of an outlier. So that's something that I talk about in the book a lot with, mm-hmm. you know, through the guidance of, of other people with more expertise on these topics That's the thing that I think unifies them all. And as you mentioned, with the exception of one victim, all of these victims were sober, Mm -hmm. which I found to be very interesting. So
0: what do we know about his M.O.? I mean, this is the point at which his nickname comes into play. And there's a sense in which uh, we know a little bit about his method, but it's not entirely clear. So what are what are the facts in this case?
1: So there is the prevailing narrative that was presented, you know, as closely to fact as possible while these uh, murders were occurring and for a long time afterward. And there is the newly uh, the the reopened investigation of the cases that started in 2018 that started after the Golden Gate killer was arrested. There were a lot of um, Mm -hmm. reexaminations of of cold cases. So these the doodler name came out of several survivors who said that they had met this man in a bar or in a restaurant around the Castro and he had told them he was an art student but with one surviving victim he approached the doodler approached this victim with sketches of animals. Mm-hmm. And started talking about, you know, his, his talents as an art student and how he wanted to get into commercial art as a career. From that story, from the sketches of animals shown to one surviving victim, has spiraled into a very specific narrative of the doodler approaching each of his victims at a bar, doing, sketching a portrait of them, and that being his pickup.
0: Uh, question for you about that later, but yes, please continue.
1: What current investigators have really looked into is the validity of that myth that he was going up to people and hmm. uh, drawing them. In reality, the Castro, the gay community in, in, at large, and, and the, during this period of time was not taking any of this lying down. The doodler was certainly not the only uh, source of violence in the community. People were getting harassed, getting uh, injured, getting murdered, getting assaulted, a lot in the Castro. So there were a number of organizations that banded together to form citizen patrols that were on the lookout. Multiple men were repeatedly arrested as potential suspects in the Doodler murders. People were looking for this guy. So you really have to question, if that's the lore, how could he have continued doing it six times within, you know, the span of less than two years and not have that alert anyone?
0: Yeah, so- I'd like to ask Laurie about this, because you have kind of an interesting moment where you have one thing that is thought decades ago, you have a revision to that notion which comes much more recently. How do you balance that tension within the story as you're editing a manuscript like this? If misinformation is key to understanding how a case progresses early on, and yet by the end of the story, the misinformation has never been fully debunked, it's only been partially debunked. There's a little bit of uncertainty still surrounding it as Kate says. How do you, as an editor, then sign off on what is known, what is unknown, and what is partially known? Sure,
2: it's a good question. Um, so, when you're building a story, there's always going to be a hook, and no matter the story is true or not. And in this case, um, the Doodler, you know, mythology that built around this these murder cases really were what um, connected them all together for investigation. So it is still part of the story even though maybe evidence of that is not, you know, available. It's still how the how the okay. whole um, all the stories hang together. So it's something that's a, a narrative thread, but also, I mean, Kate addresses this very well at the end of her story. She's like, you know, all of these things were said to have happened. This is the evidence we actually have. You know, there is a possibility that there's even more victims out there because they were so focused on this particular train of evidence that we really don't know if it was true. So, you know, the police are expanding their search in terms of the type of murder that was occurred and and the areas that they're looking at. So the police over time had to adjust their way of looking at it. And so the, the, you know, as long as the book addresses that and helps the reader understand why we've moved from, we're looking at this group of people to we're looking at this group of people, Mm -hmm. then it's a great story. You still have fulfilled your obligation as an author of explaining to the reader how you got from A to B. That's really the important part.
0: I I will confess uh, to both of you uh, that as I was reading uh, your book, Kate, I was, it is a page turner. It is absolutely a page turner. And as I was turning each page, I was looking for, waiting for the reproduction of one of these alleged doodles, right? I mean, I felt like that was the kind of, it was the bait that I was getting ready to, to bite down on. I was sort of waiting for it and it never came and it never came. And then I realized there must be a reason for that. And uh, there's a specific thing that I want to ask you about about the California Public Records Act. But in in advance of that, it became quite clear by the middle of the book that this telling absence, right, this felt absence in the lack of evidence that we as your readers get had its own origin.
1: That was one of the first questions that I had uh, about this case was the same thing. How do I, were these drawings recovered? Um, Mm. Did someone, you know, at least have their portrait drawn, you know, let's just start there. And, uh, you know, winding and weaving my way through research, it took a very, very, very long time for the SFPD to um, officially talk to me about this case. And that was a huge part of my discussion was, or agreed, um, both sides agreed that there is no evidence for portraits. Hmm. So I wanted to, without, you know, first of all, I did not know that at the at the point. I was writing this book as the research came in because I wanted to write it in as linear a way. I wanted to go on this journey with the reader. Mm-hmm. So when I started writing this book, I started with the autopsies. I didn't start with any case file, any type of research that other people have done on this case. I started with the autopsies so that I could say, see what exactly happened and then worked my way out from there. And just as you're saying, you know, as you were reading the book, I had the same exact feeling. Well, where is, when am I going to get to someone who can say, well, this is where it came from. And when I finally got to, you know, the end of the line, which is the current inspector on the case, mm-hmm. so we don't have them. Not it's not something that we have. And so we have to look outside of the preconceived notions that are around this, have been around this case for decades.
0: So let's go back to what we do have then. And one of the things that we do have, which is incredibly powerful in your account, are the several, the small handful of instances in which this killer attacked someone who was able to either get away or who survived or who kind of screamed loudly enough that the neighbors heard and kind of intervened. And there are, uh, by my count, there were three sort of primary survivors of attempted murder by this individual. Um, Tell us about, about these folks.
1: We do not know their actual names. Um, Mm -hmm. What we do know is one was a Swedish diplomat who lived in the Fox Plaza Uh, We know the other one was a renowned public figure. Everybody in San Francisco or the Bay Area would know his name. Mm -hmm. And the third one is an internationally known entertainer. And that has spawned theories from, you know, a lot of people think it's Rock Hudson. You know, there's all types of, (laughs) once you open that door of, you know, oh, if you knew his name, that's what the police said at the time. You know, they kind of teased the press a little bit. Well, if we said his name. Everybody would know who he was.
0: You know, if we're in the mid 70s and and we're talking, you know, internationally known, you know, stars, um, my bet's going to be James Garner. I'm a big Rockford Files kind of guy. So, you know, got to be James Garner, right? Has to. Right.
1: Exactly. Everybody has. It's like with the Zodiac. Everybody has their, you know, idea of who of who this person is. Um, but we do know yeah. that everyone except for the diplomat has passed away. So unfortunately, we do not have an opportunity to get the accounts of the people who I refer to as the public figure and the entertainer. So the diplomat is the person who is still alive. Um, And what happened was he is the man who was presented with the sketches of the animals. Mm -hmm. Um, He was at a bar that was a couple blocks away from where he lived, the Fox Plaza. And he hit it off with this guy and, um, brought him back to his apartment and you know, they walk in and this man says, asks him for drugs. And the diplomat says, I don't have any drugs. He said, okay. Mm-hmm. So he goes in the bathroom for 30 minutes, doesn't come out. Now I would, I don't know what I would do if I just, you know, had somebody sitting in my bathroom for 30 minutes. So... Yeah. When the, who we now call the doodler came out of this bathroom, the diplomat said he was a completely, his whole face had just completely changed. He had a knife and basically he told him, I've done this before. I enjoy this. You people are all the same. And the diplomat was very clear. You people meant gay men. And so there was a lot of rage behind this act. We know that. He stabbed the diplomat six times before he was finally able to get away. And perhaps one of the most disturbing elements of this case to me in its entirety is that the other victim, the public figure, was also lived in the Fox Plaza. And yeah. Was, Practically, you know, next door to the diplomat for all intents and purposes to return to that building with another victim, a matter of weeks, you know, after you've attacked the diplomat that tells me a lot about this guy hmm. to repeat such an intensely horrific act to be so bold as to come back, almost to say, you're not going to, you're not going to, Tell on me, you're closeted. You're not gonna. You're not gonna lock me up, um, because it, it doesn't just mean admitting, you know, that that your true sexual identity, but it also means losing your job, losing your family. If you've already been through the trauma of being stabbed six times and narrowly surviving with your life, and you know the way I feel about it. If, if someone had taken that much from me and traumatized me that much, I don't know that I could add to that trauma by saying, I, I'm, gonna, I'm going to come forward and, and lose the support system that I really will rely on to kind of get through this. So there were two attacks at the Fox Plaza in one instance, uh, the other instance at, at Fox Plaza, someone was tied up mm-hmm. and screamed and banged on the walls before they could um, be stabbed. And with the entertainer, with your international uh, entertainer, mm-hmm. uh, his the the gist of his statement was that he was getting into bed with this man and a butcher knife fell out of his sleeve and <laughs> on the Good floor evidence. and the guy <laughs> immediately ran out of the room. Um, and thank God he did, because, you know, he probably would be the sixth or seventh, you know, victim had he not
0: Yeah. It's a small red flag. It's just a tiny little red flag when a butcher knife just shows up like that. I mean, you know, you might have cause to worry.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what happened. And these, these three survivors occurred after at least the the five murders that we know. So if this is indeed the same man who, who killed Gerald and uh, those subsequent men, if he's the same person who attacked these other men in their homes, you know, there might've been a progression of uh, leaving these guys out on the beach. They're completely blood soaked, absolutely mm-hmm. horrific scene. I'm not getting that much attention. Nobody's really looking for me. Mm-hmm. I feel like you up the ante by starting to go in someone's home, um, trying to, and there's still no sexual activity. Now, maybe that's simply because these people got away, but right. the coming right. out of the bathroom with you people are all the same. Um, Those are kind of indications to me that there is something bigger going on that is tied to and the same time outside of a sexual motivation.
2: Come play with us.
0: You know, there is a terrible irony here that you point out, which is that um, for these survivors, even though their own lives were nearly ended, they, they still felt like they could not speak publicly about what had happened for fear of destroying their own lives in terms of reputation and that sort of the public shame as being outed, you know, if they were in fact closeted and so forth. And it's this just really gripping moment in the narrative where you realize that the human cost of <laughs> of these incidents um, is in a sense greater than the body count, right? And and, and we, sometimes we condense murder narratives to just a body count one after the other. And we have to be very careful about doing that. And I think your observation about the stigma that was still attached in this time, even as the gay liberation movement was really gaining steam, was, was so spot on. Now, I want to shift gears to talk about context and about research uh, for a minute. And I want to bring Laurie in on on this question uh, the doula murders offers an incredible amount of insight into the time and place of of its case right the 1970s the emerging uh, gay rights movement the rise of gay activism in california the bay area the other serial murders happening at the time the zebra the zodiac and so forth as well as the context of the conflicts with the san francisco police department and the tensions between officers, law enforcement, and members of the gay community. All of this is part of the narrative. In fact, these aspects are central parts of the narrative, and the story could not be told without them. But Before we return to the sort of progression of the case, Laurie, the the question that I have for you is, how and when did this digging into the context of the murders emerge in your conversations Uh, with Kate. And to what extent as an editor, are you always watching out for the need for this kind of meta story, right? The story outside the basic narrative of that growing body count and the hunt for the killer.
2: So in this case, specifically, Kate and I started talking about it when she first brought this case to me. Um, Because as someone who works on a lot of true crime books, I'm very aware of the, you know, potential exploitation of the worst moment in someone's life. And it's really important for me. Um, I i am a true crime aficionado too. I love reading those books. I love listening to the podcast. So, you know, sometimes I question like, am I getting the, the right stories? This important for me to know. And so for me, I really want to see my authors and Kate does this very well putting the victim first. So in order to tell the story of these you know this guy committing this horrific crimes, we have to know who the victims are and you know it's a big part of why he chose them and why there were so many victims is the culture that they were in at the time and you know Kate was very aware of that from the very beginning is that one of the most important, pieces of scaffolding that we have in this book is the, you know, the gay community at the time in San Francisco and all of the distrust that they had in law enforcement and the general population just not accepting them. Uh, and the very valid reasons that they might have for protecting themselves um, versus going to the police for help. So we knew from the very beginning that this was going to be a big part of the story. And Kate and I talked about how important it was to really showcase that in terms of the entire uh, community being involved and being you know, potentially targeted by this particular serial killer, because that was part of of his you know, M.O. That was part of what he did is target this specific community. So we needed to see who those people are and what was important to the victims. Um, and their community, so that we could know them because they can't tell their story anymore. You know, you have to be really careful about glorifying a crime that the you know the person who was most hurt by it doesn't have a voice in it anymore.
0: Uh, Kate, what was it like for you to have to travel back in time fifty years to bring this context back to the present that San Francisco and the Bay area have changed so much in, in that time. It's almost unrecognizable, isn't it?
1: Yes, absolutely. The thing it was that, like I said, I, I really wanted to go in as tight of a chronological order as possible. I thought that working backward and trying to say, okay, it's this way now, how were things back then would just be too overwhelming for me. Right. So starting in 1974, I, you know, wasn't just looking at for coverage of these murders, which was very scant. Um, I was reading all of the publication, especially the San Francisco Sentinel and the Bay Area Reporter, which were the two uh, main LGBTQ publications at the time. So those reading through those in their entirety as these times were going, it wasn't just even the stories, it was... Ads for different bars, um, a lot of ads for different celebrations. So you get a feeling of what's going on. You get a rhythm of, okay, this is, you know, this is sort of what the vibe is while this is occurring. Because in those publications, you get a lot more coverage, obviously, of all of the other crimes that were going on. You get, um, Mm. Even interactions with law enforcement, Um, there was a man, Sergeant Blackstone, who was on, I believe, the homicide detail and wrote a column for the Sentinel in which he would answer questions that people sent in regarding, you know, the relationship between um, the gay community and the police and things like that. So. Mm. Honestly, those two publications, and I say this in my, you know, acknowledgments, this book wouldn't exist without them because they did such an incredible job with making sure that their readers got a huge range of information. You knew the best place to go see the latest drag show and you knew that somebody, you know, keep an eye out because there were three attacks on 18th and Castro, you know, last night or whatever it was. So That in in combination with really, I am forever indebted to the GLBT Historical Society, which has been around for decades and decades. Um, They are absolutely essential to researching the gay community during the period of time that these murders occurred. So really it was deferring to, rather than me trying to learn it all. There is no learning at all. I wasn't alive then. I, you know, there's there's no way. It was a matter of piecing together who I could find that did have that knowledge, that did have that experience and did have that database of just knowledge that I cannot have. And so a lot in, in the book is me highlighting the work of people who again, have that experience and have that knowledge, because I think if I would have tried to go about it simply as let me go backwards and just kind of, what would I feel like if I wasn't, that's not going to work. You know, trying to put, a lot of times in different cases, you know, you could try to put yourself in the, in the um, shoes of the victim or even the shoes of the killer or any of that. I don't have any of that. So I really needed to be resourceful and make sure that I was in contact with the you know authorities on the history of that time in that community.
0: one of the themes that is emerging as as the two of you are meditating on this is is access right it's access to certain kinds of information and what what we have available to us, what we have to go in search of uh, the the balance between discovery and common knowledge or kind of um, that sense of attention between what is Known can be found and what remains unknown. One of the key sources of tension in your book, and this is a question really for both of you, is the tension regarding what I believe in the very first paragraph of the entire book you call the bane of your existence, (laughs) which is the California Public Records Act and your effort as a researcher to gain access to files which remain sealed and they remain sealed, of course, for good reason in some cases, but in mm-hmm. other cases you so you ha- you say you're having to sort of wage this repeated series of battles in order to, you know, to learn what you need to learn in order to tell right. this story. Tell us about the CPRA and your very complicated relationship to it, Kate.
1: Yes. So, Basically, for um, anyone who's never had the pleasure of <laughs> trying to figure out how to get information through this act, um, it has blanket coverage for anything that is still under investigation, which means if I go to the L.A. Times from 1975 and there's a booking photo of uh, Someone, even if they were later convicted, right, they'll say for some reason, well, we can't because that that would show the course of the investigation as to how we got that guy's booking. I'm like, but it's in it's in the the newspaper, you know, I don't understand. There's a lot of information like that that will be printed, that will be out in the public. And you'll say, hey, can I get the official records on this? can I get the official statement on this? Can I get a photo that you've already released to the press, but I can't use it. It's rainy. It's from 1970. There's no, I can't, you know, I don't have access in, in these cases, a lot of imagery, a lot of statements, um, only exist in these microfilm roles that, you know, hopefully stay together for a while because that's pretty much it. So, um, Every time I turned around, there's some reason as to, and it's almost always, well, it's tied to an ongoing investigation. And Mm it doesn't matter if it's been made public or not. Um, So my frustration is it's really misleading to call it the Public Records Act, because there are a lot of things that are public that they simply won't give you anything official on. So that is a true joy. Um, But what I (laughs) found out, I had better luck with the Freedom of Information Act request. At least, you know, there was, they would, they would show me that they had reviewed the request. You know, when you get something back for a Freedom of Information Act request, it will show you, we looked at this, we can give you this, we can't give you this, this part's redacted. Mm -hmm. I would just get a no (laughs) from California. So what I wound up doing, and it's taken a lot of time and there's actually still um, elements of different things that I'm in conversation with law enforcement about that just couldn't make it into this book, maybe the next one. I just felt like the most efficient way to sort of get out of this loophole was to find some contact in as many jurisdictions So well, there are multiple jurisdictions that I talk about cases in this book. It's not just San Francisco. Um, get those contacts. Try to just inch your way into a phone call. Um, email's great, but if you can get somebody on the phone explain this is who I am, this is why I want this information. Could you, you know, put the right request into the right person. So I I sort of gave up on a lot of the Public Records Act attempts, um, unless all else failed within a jurisdiction. Then I'd say, okay, send it in and not get the no that I already know I'm going to get. There's a lot of technicalities that you have to kind of just learn and accept.
0: Laurie, in your role, when an author comes to you with these kinds of obstacles, how do you navigate them? What options do the two of you together have?
2: Well, I'm not really deeply involved in the research, so I'll always, you know, offer suggestions, but, um, the author's, uh, connections are really what sell the story to me to begin with. So Kate already had a really great, um, connection to the Bay Area community and she's already working on building all those relationships that she needed, um, for this book and for the research she did. And, you know, I, I don't remember any specific conversations that we had, um, But I do know that I definitely encouraged your ongoing relationship that you developed with the police officers in some of your cases. That really worked out well. I'm pretty familiar with law enforcement because of my background. So it was great to hear that she was able to find some of those uh, connections that were willing to talk to her and willing to discuss the case with her because they could recognize like a mutually beneficial relationship in terms of like getting some light shined on these cases. And she was really able to navigate those difficulties very well.
0: Kate, is there a particular area in which you really felt as though you were able to shine some light that had never been shown before in that respect?
1: Yes, I had a very cool moment um, that may or may not be related to exactly the Doodler case. I do talk about it in the book, though, because... Like I said, the, when you really look at the number of murders in the general area of gay men, and it's insane. Um, but I actually had a phone call with a sergeant on some John Doe cases. And it was one of those things, you know, sometimes as a researcher, you have a question in your mind. You go, I'm going to be the 800th person to ask this guy this. And it's going to be like, yes, no, we looked into it. No, it's not that. Um, but something told me, i oh, just ask, you know, and so I said, you've probably thought of this a million times, but have you looked into so-and-so and you could just kind of feel this shift on the phone call, um, because the suspect I mentioned, who was, I write about in the book, who, a uh, very prolific serial killer, um, still in San Quentin. Have you ever thought about him? He was in the area at the same time. And he had never been looked into. The um, current investigators weren't aware of who he was. And maybe it's nothing. But having that tiny moment of just Hmm. that acknowledgement of we didn't think about that. And we have DNA. And we can go back and look at this. And we can either rule it out or rule it in. That was a really huge moment for me. And it helped that the you know, sergeant that I spoke with at length was saying how much he appreciates work that it's like the work that we all do, you know, is, is solid research and presenting facts and putting the work behind the story. And that it's helped with a lot of cases. Just that small connection of realizing that what, what I'm doing is important and can be helpful in a much larger sense than even the book.
0: Thanks for listening. Our guests have been Kate Zelisnak and Laurie Krill, author and editor of the San Francisco Doodler Murders, published this month by the History Press. To order a copy of The Doodler Murders, visit your local independent bookstore, our Crime Capsule show page on bookshop.org or ArcadiaPublishing.com Join us next week as we pick up where Kate and Laurie left off and the story of the story comes to a close. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with Arcadia Publishing and the History Press and is a member of the Killer Podcasts Network. Thanks as always to our producer Bill Huffman our production director Bridget Coyne audio engineer Ian Douglas and our executive producers, Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Season two of the show will launch in a few weeks, so stay tuned. Until then, I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. To learn more about Evergreen, offering shows in every genre, visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com.